Glad you're here today. I hope you had a good week, and uh, I hope you are uh, wrestling with these issues. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit, and there are, there are implications to this that are beginning to close in on us. We can't just keep this as a hypothetical discussion forever. At some point, there's got to be some engagement with some sort of an experiential expectation. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray indeed for that spirit to come today to the degree that we are ready for your spirit. Help us, Lord, as we continue down this road. Key our minds into what steps we need to take. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been talking since the beginning of the year about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the way that the Holy Spirit came to the church in power. We often uh, turn to those passages like the Great Gospel Commission that says, Go, therefore, and make disciples. And we feel that impulse and we, and we feel that sense that, yes, in fact, this is something the Lord has called us to do, to go. But sometimes we forget to read the section where Jesus said to them, but before you go, wait. Because I don't want you going out there trying to do this in your own strength. I want you to be filled with the Spirit. It's referred to as the gift that the Father promised. And they were to wait in Jerusalem until the gift that the Father promised. Now, they probably thought, well, I don't know. Are we going to be able to tell when it happens? I don't know. And, and they're together. They came together. It said they were all together in one accord. In other words, they made peace with one another. And they loved one another. And that's, don't take that lightly. <clears throat> These are the 12 that used to argue in the presence of Jesus about who was the greatest. So it's not like it was easier for them. But they invested in each other, made peace with one another, prayed together, worshipped together, and then Acts 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If anybody had wondered before whether it would be obvious when this promise of the Father came, after that day, nobody wondered anymore. Because what happened that day was obvious to them they knew something that had happened. It was obvious to others because others came and gathered around to see what was going on. And then we've been talking about, and we specifically talked about this last Sabbath, it's related to being water baptized. Now, we, we do that very literally. Adventists take that very literally. Just about any Adventist church will have a baptistry. We fill it up with water and you get on a robe and you go in there and you get baptized. I understand Pastor Jay is about to start working with some, some of our younger people who have expressed an interest in being baptized. These are all activities that have kind of gotten shunted to the side during these COVID days and some of the normal systems 
where we would gather for Bible studies and things like that haven't transpired like they used to. But we want to get that going again. We want there to be days where the tank is filled with water and we baptize. And baptism is, a, is an incredible thing, and I want to talk about it today. And we will as we go along. Because this idea of the outpouring of the Spirit is related to baptism, but not always perfectly in a one-to-one scenario. So to give us context for today, I want to start in Acts chapter 15. Now I'm going to use the translation that you have in the pew in front of you there. It's the English Standard Version. And uh, Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to start today. We're just getting context here. Acts chapter 15 verse 1 says this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, what's happening here is Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. You remember Antioch became the place that sent out the first Christian missionaries intending to go and speak to the Gentiles. It wasn't Jerusalem. Because you see, Jerusalem was still kind of trapped in in traditions and mentalities associated with Judaism that the Christian church was growing from. And in those early days, they thought only Jews could be a part of this. But you remember that Jesus said to them in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we spent a couple of weeks walking our way through this. Acts 2 is this, this big moment when the witness begins in Jerusalem, and it grows from there, but it's all mostly in Jerusalem until an event takes place. Do you remember what that event was? The stoning of Stephen. Stephen was named as as one of the deacons, and he became very powerful, and he was debating with, with the Hellenized Jews. That's the Greek-speaking, uh, Greek culture-following Jews. And he was speaking with them and overcoming them, and they got angry with him, and they drug, them before the, drug him before the Sanhedrin, convicted him, took him outside, stoned him to death, put their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. And the Scripture says... Following the persecution, the believers spread throughout Judea and Samaria. And everywhere they went, they taught about Jesus. So this was a fulfillment of exactly what Jesus said would happen. It started in Jerusalem, but then it spread to Judea and Samaria. And we stopped and reflected for just a moment on how how the way the leading of the Lord and the fulfillment of the Lord's word takes place isn't always what we would choose. Nobody says, yes, please, persecution. Yet, through persecution, the word of God was fulfilled. But they're still mostly just talking to Jews. But, but Philip starts talking to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans believe, but that seems a little strange. So, so the church in Jerusalem sends John and Peter to go make sure this is really happening. And the interesting thing about the Samaritans, they believed they were baptized, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came and laid their hands on them. Now, the Samaritans were outsiders compared to Jews, but they weren't as far outside as the Gentiles. The Samaritans were the people that had moved into the lands of Israel 
after the northern tribes were deported and they had taken on certain aspects of worship of Yahweh, including circumcision. So they were still technically of the circumcised, which was the sign of the covenant. And that brings us to Acts chapter 15. We'll read verse 1 again. Paul and Barnabas have been out talking to uncircumcised Gentiles and they've been believing. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, I almost chased this rabbit. I almost went down this hole. I almost spent most of today talking about this because it's such a fascinating issue and so relevant in this day in which we are seeking to understand what does the Lord require of his church in our day? What of what has been must be preserved, but what of what has been must be let go? And the truth is, had we been those people in that day, it would have been really hard for us to let go the idea that circumcision was required to be a part of the covenant of God. I better be careful, I'm about to do it, so let's go on. Here's the point. It must always be the Holy Spirit's enlightening our understanding of Scripture that leads us. Because if all you had was the Old Testament, you would have been pretty convinced that circumcision was a covenant forever. Because that's exactly what it says. It would have been really hard to let that go. And this is why it is so important that if we are to understand what God would have us do in our day, we must be spirit-filled. Now this discussion goes on in Acts chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. They're all in Jerusalem. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Paul here is referencing the story of Peter and Cornelius. Now, Pastor Jay is going to speak in this series at the end of this month, and he's going to spend time on this story. So I'm only referencing it here, and we'll spend more time on that when he speaks about this story. But do you notice what Peter says here? Peter's appeal is not to some detailed interpretation of Old Testament Scripture. Peter's appeal is to the fact that God poured the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles even when he didn't expect it to happen. That's a little unnerving for us, isn't it? 
Can we be trusted to make decisions based on our perception of the leading of the Holy Spirit? Even when it seemingly contradicts things that we have held for a long time? But let's push on to our point for today. The point is centered around this question. Into what were you baptized? We grabbed this story from Acts 15 for context related to the outpouring of the Spirit to create an interesting contrast that emerges. Cornelius is unbaptized. He has not been lowered into the water because no self-respecting Jew at that point was going to baptize an uncircumcised Gentile. But he was spirit-filled even before he was baptized. Today, we're going to meet some guys who have the opposite situation. For relevant context, we're going to go to Acts chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 1. And it goes like this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now this is a fascinating introduction of Aquila and Priscilla. It says Aquila was a Jew, first of all. He was a Jew that was a part of the diaspora. The Jews were spread all over this region, and we're going to see a couple of those people from different places pop up here. He was a Jew from Pontus. Now, Pontus was a region of modern-day Turkey on the northern part of the country up against the Black Sea, and it had historically been a colony of the Greeks. So this Greek colony sat all the way up there on the north side of the land uh, of what we would call Asia Minor, sat all the way up there on the top. This colony had become, after a time, uh, a Hellenized kingdom for a short period of time. That means a, a Greek kingdom for a little while. But then the Romans had come and taken it over, and now it was just a province of the Roman Empire. So somehow this Jew, who is, who is clearly a businessman, was from that region traveled to Rome. This guy's got better travel than, than everybody here but Greg Hodgson, I think, probably. But traveled to Rome, spent time there until the emperor threw him out because all the Jews got thrown out. And he and his wife moved to Corinth, which was an economic hub on the Greek peninsula. And this is where Paul shows up and he meets this guy. Now, as interesting as Aquila is, it is actually seemingly the case that his wife may have been more prominent in the church ultimately than he was. Because the first time they're introduced, we hear about Aquila and they're Aquila and Priscilla, but pretty much every other time you read it, it's Priscilla and Aquila. 
So that's an interesting point that we don't necessarily know for sure about. But Paul establishes a very close relationship with this couple. Now in the city of Corinth, pushback developed against Paul by the Jews of Corinth. And there's an interesting story that takes place between Acts chapter 4 Acts chapter 18, verse 4, and verse 18. We're going to skip that story. You can read it sometime. It's pretty interesting what took place. It's an example of the many ways that God has to preserve his work. But we go down to verse 18. It says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. Paul's going back to Antioch. And with him... Priscilla and Aquila. So Priscilla and Aquila get on the boat with Paul, who says, I'm headed for Antioch. At Sincrea, Paul had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. This is an interesting point. What this point says is that Paul is still functioning according to certain realities of Jewish law and tradition. And one of the realities of Jewish law and tradition was when you made a vow, when that vow was fulfilled, you shaved your head. And so people like me, it looks like we're constantly fulfilling vows. It's just what we do. Jay is constantly fulfilling vows. But that was what they did. You, you shaved your head as a part of this. And this is an interesting point because Paul, even though he's teaching Gentiles and not requiring certain things of them, he himself is still preserving certain traditions from which he came. And it raises an interesting question that we're not going to go into today, but I should at least plant in your mind. Is God allowed to require different things of different people? Now here's the thing with that. If the point is the requirements is in order to be saved, then no, he absolutely is not. Because it's not by the things that we do we're saved, it's by faith in Jesus Christ. But having been saved, could God ask of me things he's not going to ask of you? And this plays very tightly into this whole discussion here that takes place in Acts chapter 15, where you've got this one group looking for the uniform behavior that God requires versus another group saying, I'm not sure God is asking everybody to do the same thing. And that's kind of a hard question to wrestle with. And maybe we'll come back to it another day, but let's go on with where we are here. So, I got to remember where we are here. All right, here we go. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days he took with him Priscilla and Aquila, and at Sincrea he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Then verse 19, and they came to Ephesus. Ephesus is a town on the, uh, what we would call the western end of Asia Minor. And they came to Ephesus, and he left Priscilla and Aquila there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, that's all just kind of, why in the world does it say he picked them up? Why does it say he met them? Why does it say he left them there? It's going to become relevant in a minute. Verse 20, when they asked him to stay long, for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. That means he went to Jerusalem. 
and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul goes back to Jerusalem, goes back to Antioch where he came from, hangs around for a little while, and then sets out over land to travel all the way the length of Asia Minor back across to all the places he'd visited before. Now, we arrive at the first of two key accounts. And it is interesting in this first account that what is about to take place, Paul is not present, nor is Barnabas, nor Peter, or James, or John, or any of the, of the apostles. For this account that we're about to read, there is just a church and a couple of engaged members and a really remarkable guy who shows up. So out of all the book of Acts, this is kind of an interesting one because it takes place with characters that are not of the original group. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. All right, so just from that sentence... We already know a lot about this guy. First of all, he's a Jew. But, but let's go on reading. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. All right, let's go back to that first verse. He's a Jew named Apollos from Alexandria. What do we know from that? Well, first of all, he's a Jew, so he's at least contextually schooled in the realities of Judaism. Second, his name is Apollos. I'm trying to remember. That's not a Hebrew name, right? That was a Greek god. Yeah. He's a Hellenized Jew. He's raised in the context of Greek culture. He probably speaks Greek fluently. And he's from Alexandria. Alexandria was the great city on the north side of Egypt where the great lighthouse was and the great library of Alexandria. It's believed that the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was written in Alexandria. He's from a place of learning, a place of knowing, a cosmopolitan place. This is a man who knows the world. He knows Greek culture. But he's a Jew. And he shows up in Ephesus, and may I suggest that in reading the description of this man, I just introduced to you the perfect Adventist pastoral candidate. Don't want to run through his qualifications again. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, eloquent, competent in Scripture, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So I don't know how I can beat that. He's a Jew. He's one of the good people. He's one of the people we can trust. Now, that's actually, in a sense there, I'm, I'm making a race comment, but the reality here is even within Adventism, we have some of that too. It's easier to accept voices that we're familiar with. And this is one of the reasons it's so important within the church that we have leaders of different races. Because different people are able to engage and hear better 
from those voices. So, so he was a Jew. He was a man with knowledge, of the, with knowledge of the world. So he's not just somebody that spent his whole life in a self-supporting community and has no idea what the world does. He knows what's out there. He's eloquent. Oh, we love a good preacher, don't we? Yeah, remember, these are, these are qualifications for the perfect Adventist pastor. He's competent in the Scripture. If there's one thing we require, competence with the Scripture. He had been taught about Jesus. Okay, well, I guess that's important too. He was fervent, hardworking, not a slacker in any way, and he taught accurately about Jesus. Now, I beg of you, what more could you want than this? Is this not the perfect pastor? Indeed, I want to suggest to you that it is to create a policy that we as a church have labored long in Sabbath schools and Adventist education and universities. And I want to suggest that we have, in most cases, done this quite well. And that is a good thing. But is it enough? Is that list enough? Well, let me finish the verse, because maybe you notice I didn't finish verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He knew only the baptism of John. What does that mean? Well, we'll see more in a moment. Let's go on. Verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when, ah, catch the names here. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's the region of Greece where Corinth is, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, so he gets up, he's speaking powerfully about Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila, the layman, hear him, and they're like, this guy's good, he's got a lot of talent, but he's missing something. And they say, hey, Apollos, come, come to our house for lunch. And he comes over after synagogue and they sit down and they spend time and they give him something. What is it? What did they tell him? Well, I don't think it was a better theology about Jesus because it says he was already good at that. I don't think they said if you try a little harder, if you're a little more fervent, it's going to work out. No, he already was that. And I don't think it was how to preach a better sermon because he was better at that than they were. Or how to debate a Gentile, because he was a master. He was already better at those things than Priscilla and Aquila. So what was it that Apollos lacked? Well, the hint is in the verse. It says he knew only the baptism of John. And what is that? Well, that brings us to our next story. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, 
Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So Paul comes. Paul goes over here. I guess for you guys, it's over here. And then, and then uh, Apollos comes for a little while. Then he goes on over here. And Paul comes all the way back across. They never connected. Paul comes back to Ephesus. And it says, there he found some disciples. Verse 2. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Which leads to the question that is our title for today, verse 3. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Now stop right there. Isn't that how you all were baptized? Stop right there and think about this. I mean, isn't that how we decide someone's ready to be baptized? And isn't that in some ways now minimal compared to what we did some years ago? Can anyone say they must all be circumcised before they're baptized? We've put a lot of rules on this, haven't we? Well, what are the terms for baptism? Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you confess you are a sinner and repent of your sins? Yes. Well, then you're all set, right? Well, sort of. You're all set for the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance and confession of faith in Jesus. So what were you baptized into? Kind of that. Verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, There were about 12 men in all. Let's go back to our little construct here. They knew they believed in Jesus. They knew they had repented of their sins. They didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. But when they were baptized again, and Paul's hands were laid on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and it was obvious to them, and it was obvious to others, And its relationship to baptism was kind of twofold, really. It was after, but also kind of simultaneous. Now, here's the interesting thing we've historically done with this passage. We've used this passage as an explanation why a person should be rebaptized when they become a part of the Adventist church. Because you get rebaptized when you accept new truth. And that's not untrue, but it's not the point of the story. The reason they were rebaptized is so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And this is what Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos, though there isn't the detail that you see here. I don't know if they laid their hands on him as well. It doesn't say if he spoke in tongues. No idea. But this 
peace was what was lacking in the ministry of Apollos. He had all the skill set. But he had not yet known the full power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Holy Spirit-filled members taught him. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us with a question. Into what were you baptized? I'm going to ask our, our musicians to come back today because we're going to do a couple songs after this. And, and when we do these songs, you really need to be questioning your own heart and your own experience. Centered in this question, into what have I been baptized? Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. This is the words of John the Baptist himself. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than me, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Probably been baptized in water. Have you been baptized in fire? Humans can baptize you with water for repentance and belief. But it is Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. And when this happens to you, it's obvious to you, and it's obvious to others. Have you had this baptism? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for all who are here who have been baptized with the baptism of John for repentance and confession of faith in Jesus. This is a good, good thing. But Lord, you've promised something else with that. You've promised a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do we know what that is? Have we experienced it? I'm sure many have. Do we need a refresher? Lord, what will it take for us to receive an infilling of the Spirit in a way that we will know and that others will know. Help us as we ponder these questions. In Jesus' name, amen.